Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I hope you've been enjoying the book of Mark. I have. We're going to read verses 21 through 43. This is called, and Mark uh, uses this literary device. It's got a fancy word. I'm not going to give it to you. I've heard another word used. It's called a sandwich. It's called a story sandwich. The story starts with one thing. It gets interrupted with another thing, which is the middle of the sandwich. And then it finishes back up with what we started with. And you're going to notice that in this, uh, what we're about to read. This is uh, Jairus and his daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. How many of you remember this story from Sunday school? Uh, and you've probably collared some pictures on it. Uh, some of the stuff we talk about today, there will be no collaring pictures for. So, let's just read. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is life, it is power, it is truth. Lord, that by your word you feed us and you cause us to grow. You 
show us what manner of men and women we are, and we are changed by the power of it. God, I pray that this morning you would help me to say the things that are needed, that are helpful, that are encouraging, that are necessary. I pray, Lord, that every every ear would be opened listening to the sermon today. By the power of your Spirit, Lord, we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So you recognize the sandwich, right? Jairus has a daughter that is sick at the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, Jairus has a daughter who is dead. In the middle of Jairus and his issue with his family, you have the woman with the issue of blood. And so where we've been in Mark chapter 5 and Mark earlier in Mark chapter 4, we have dealt with four things when we're done today, four things that Jesus is demonstrating his glory and his power over. Mark's intent in the Gospel of Mark is to demonstrate that Jesus is God in the flesh. And there is no one like him, never has there been, never will there be anyone like Jesus. And in Mark 4 and 5, he has demonstrated sovereign authority over storms. He's demonstrated sovereign authority over demons, even a legion of demons. He is now demonstrating sovereign authority over sickness and death. He demonstrates there is nothing bigger than Him. There is nothing He is not over top of. So let's look at this in detail. So the very first thing that happens is Jesus was over there across the sea of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he has come back. He dealt with the wild man of Gadara, the demon possessed man. He dealt with him. Now he just gets right back in the boat and comes back. The crowd that was there when he left has come back when they hear that Jesus is ashore, and now they're all thronged around him. And a guy shows up in the crowd who is important. He's called a ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. And a ruler of the synagogue, uh, he wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a, a scribe or a Pharisee. He was like an administrator. He had uh, an important role. He would have probably been one of the more important people in town. And uh, what he did was arrange services, plan everything out. He was, he was an administrator. And he worked in the temple, so he was important. Does anybody remember just a few chapters ago that they were plotting Jesus' death? Does anybody remember that time several weeks ago? They're plotting the death of Jesus. Do you you know who his co-workers were? Jairus? Jairus' co-workers were plotting the death of Jesus. For him to come to Jesus is not normal. For him to come to Jesus says that he is desperate. And look at, look at what he does in verse 22. Uh, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him fell at his feet. If somebody, if you witness this at the mall, if you're walking down the mall and you see a guy desperate and wide-eyed come up to somebody else and fall at their feet, and beg them, ever you would you would notice, because in our culture that would be a little weird. 
and it was actually a little weird in their culture because Jews did not bow down to anybody. That's not what they did. In fact, that's why they got in so much conflict with Rome because they would not bow down. And so here he is, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue whose co-workers want Jesus dead. He has thrown all caution to the wind. He comes to Jesus, falls at his feet because his daughter is dying. I have four of them. It really gets me. She's 12. She's right at Sophie's age. A little bit younger. And she has all this promise because really when you're 13 and 14 in Jewish culture in the first century, you're, marriage, you're married age. You're, you're ready to be released into marriage age and, and it should be this wonderful time of life. You're getting ready to launch out and yet she's got something wrong and she's dying. And he's desperate. He implored him earnestly, saying, my daughter's at the point of death. This is it. I don't care what my reputation is. I don't care where I work. I have heard about you. I have seen you in action. I need you, Jesus. Lay your hands on her. She will be made alive. Jesus has ministered in this area for a long time. He has been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. People have been watching it. And even though Jairus may have been skeptical or even indignant or angry at this upstart who had all this teaching that was contrary to the Pharisees' law, now that his daughter's on the point of death, he is ready to come to Jesus. I love verse 24. And he went with him. Jesus doesn't even answer. Jesus doesn't say, well, look who's coming now, Mr. Synagogue Administrator. That is not the way Jesus responds. Can I just make a side note? That's, that's the way we are. If, if I had been in Jesus' shoes, I'd have been like, well, yeah, oh... Go ahead and admit it. I was right and you were wrong. Go ahead. That's the way we are. Jesus, this story not only demonstrates His power, it demonstrates His love, His mercy, His compassion. Jesus goes. This guy needs help. He's implored earnestly. He's demonstrated what I'm going to call a humble faith that has thrown caution to the wind. He's had to humble himself. He's throwing himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, I'll go. Well, he doesn't say it. He just does it. Then we go to the woman with the issue of blood. So, so Jesus, everybody get it in your mind. He's off the boat. There's a gigantic crowd of people. They're all around him. Jesus is going with this important guy to go heal his daughter. There's a crowd all around him, thronging about him. And that's what is described in the next verse. There's this group of people all around Jesus, and in this group is a woman who has what your King James Bible says is an issue of blood. 
We don't know exactly what it is. It's either related to the menstrual cycle, which is most likely, but it could be related to something else. There were other conditions that people had in the first century that we don't have today. By the way, when I was studying this, do you realize that no diseases were technically cured until the 19th century? Medicine, how many medical people we got? Medicine has, and in your medical stuff, you had to study the history of medicine at some point. Medicine really, uh, in the ancient world, was just going to treat symptoms and sometimes made it worse, as you're going to find out here in a second. Because we get all these details about this woman. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians. The word suffered is the word scourge. It is the word that she was like tortured almost, trying to find a cure. She spent all that she had and was not better, but rather grew worse. Now, I just I have to mention this because it's funny. Luke, when he records this story, does everybody know what Luke's job was? He was a physician. Do you know what Luke doesn't say? <laughs> Luke does not say she suffered much under the physicians. It just says uh, it was incurable. It's just, it's just, anyway, it's just, there's a, God used the human authors of Scripture to write their Gospels. So Luke doesn't say what Mark gives the detail, but the detail is here, and Mark has the most detail, again, oddly enough, because his Gospel is more abbreviated. He gives this extra de- these extra details. She suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather grew worse. Let me read you uh, some of the treatments that doctors in the first century would have given her. So if anybody wants to write these down for later. Um, some doctors would have encouraged her, and this probably happened to her, to carry the ash of an ostrich egg inside of either a linen or a cotton bag, depending on the time of year, you carry that around with you, and that will uh, that'll make it stop. Or you cook Persian onions in wine, and you drink it, and then there's a command issued, arise out of your flow of blood. And that might do it. There were other increasingly odd, strange, weird, physically invasive procedures that you could undergo, and every time you did it, you had to shell out money, just like you do now, for a physician, and she went to all of them. So one of them was really gross about getting some kind of uh, seed, and you put it inside of donkey dung, and then wore it around your neck. There's several uh, treatments that I would not recommend that she probably went through. Why would you go through all those treatments? Because one, you want to be healed, but two, in Leviticus chapter 15, it says that if you are bleeding, especially uh, women at, the, at their time of the month 
in particular, they were ceremonially unclean for seven days. She had been unclean now for 12 years. If she accidentally brushes up against Rob, Rob is now unclean. So what does that mean for Rob as a Jewish man in the first century? He avoids this woman. And so does every other woman. Every other woman avoids and every other man avoids because they don't want to be unclean because you can't participate in society. You can't go to the synagogue. You can't go be around people. You are unclean. Her life was misery for 12 years. So not only was she miserable because of doctors, she was miserable because her culture and her society and the law of God said, you're unclean. Look at verse 28. Verse 27 first. She had heard the reports of Jesus. Even though she's separate from everybody else, she's not totally cut off. She's heard about Jesus in this region. She's been there for over a year. She's heard the stories, and now she happens to be nearby. And when I say she happens to be, this is how God does things. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Then verse 28 says, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She's, she's talking to herself and thinking, all I got to do is get to his garment. Now, has this ever caused anybody to ask some questions? Anybody ever ask questions about this? Now, this isn't the only place. In chapter 3, they were trying to touch Jesus' clothes. And in chapter 6, they're going to try to touch Jesus' clothes. In the book of Acts, you have this really extra odd moment where Paul is sweating, making tents, and he puts the rag down, and people were coming to grab the rag, and they were being healed. There's lots of interesting stuff like this in Scripture, but what is really... Interesting for us to think about is found in Malachi chapter 4. So everybody scoot back the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. I want to give a potential reason for why she was thinking, all I got to do is touch his garment. Malachi chapter 4. If I said five, forgive me. We're going to read with the first verse. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is the end. This is the day of judgment. This is obviously scary. But, verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know for sure, 
But I want to tell you something about the expression, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The word wings in Hebrew means wings like an eagle's wings, or it means the corner of a garment. The Jewish prayer shawl that they wore. Have you've seen this before? That hangs down and there's a fringe. And God in the law had told them to have tassels, these, these special braided knots, the talit, that is what they were in Hebrew, on the, on the garments. Jesus actually criticized the Pharisees because they weren't content with normal sized fringes on their garments. They had to have extra big ones. Jesus actually criticizes them for that because they're showing off how spiritual they are and they love the phylacteries on their head and all that stuff. But this phrase, healing in its wings, is either wings of a bird or wings metaphorically here of the sun or wings also known as the corner of a garment. The corner of the garment of Jewish men which had those tassels, those knots on the end of it. Around some Jewish ideas of who the Messiah is, which is what Malachi chapter 4 is referring to, is the the end, there there were those who had the thought that the Messiah, when He comes, there will be healing even in the talit, the wings of His garment, the corners. So the thought is then that perhaps in the mind of the woman with the issue of blood is this belief that this has got to be Him, the Messiah. This has got to be Him. And so the reason she was pressing toward Him, we know from the text is she had heard about all that He had done, but it's very possible that her faith was built on the Word of God from the Old Testament predicting that the Son of Righteousness was going to rise with healing in His wings. Now, other Bible commentators would disagree with that, and go back to Mark, and they say that she had faith mixed with superstition. Because we know it's not garments that heal people. It's Jesus who heals people. Whatever the case is, in her heart and in her mind, she is going after Jesus. She said, if I touch even His garments, I'll be made well. Twelve years of this. Twelve years. How hopeless do you get after twelve years of the same thing? There are people in this room who have prayed for twelve years for various things. Family members, all kinds of stuff. And you start feeling like it's never going to happen. But she, encountering Jesus in the crowd, believes that it will. Verse 29, when she touches him, immediately the flow of blood dries up. She feels in her body she was healed of her disease. This was a physical, tangible experience. Whatever was wrong is gone, and she can tell. Because after it's been wrong for 12 years, when it ceases being wrong, you know that it's better. She knows that she's better. And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turns around the crowd and says, Who touched my garments? 
And the reason the disciples act the way that they do, uh, Jesus, there's a whole big giant crowd here. Uh, they're all touching your garments. I don't mean to be rude, Jesus, but uh, what you talking about? Everybody's touching you. This woman has pressed through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. I see in my mind every time I, I look at this, we did an Easter play. My wife's already laughing. We did an Easter play uh, back in when we were teenagers or in our early 20s, and Jennifer played the role of the woman with the issue of blood. And she did that so well, it was incredibly emotional. It was, there was just this, there were no dialogue in that. Jesus is walking through, I can see that, and everybody's around him. The, I remember in the cast, they, and I was, played the role of Peter, uh, which was really fitting, uh, loudmouth and dumb and all that. So I'm Peter, and we're all up next to Jesus. And Jennifer, the way they did this, it timed with the swell of the, do you remember this? The, with the music? And Jennifer is just trying to get through the crowd. But that image has never left my head because it, it, it showed this weak, desperate woman coming to Christ. And when she grabbed the bottom of his robe, because the word here says she grabbed it in Greek. When she grabbed it, the guy playing Jesus like does this and reacts. Everybody was touching him. But when she touches him, something is different. Power goes out of him. King James says virtue. Does anybody have a King James? Just sounds good, right? Healing virtue. This power that leaves Jesus. I, I want to say a couple things about that. You can't think of God as having 12 gallons of power, and when the woman touched Jesus, that several ounces of the power were depleted. That would be the wrong way to view God. God is infinite power all the time, and this is just the power of God, literal and tangible. This is not... This is not just philosophical. This happened. Jesus felt it. Something to say about that as well. I want you to think about this reality. That God feels personally the interaction that He has with His people. I had never considered this. I was, I was listening, uh, John MacArthur on this, on this sermon, and he said, and I had never ever considered this, that God is personally interacting with us every day, and He feels His power and His virtue as He is directing it towards us in His love, in His mercy, in His mercy, in His goodness, in His kindness as He deals with us in sanctification, as we are growing in our relationship with God, His power is at work toward us, the Apostle Paul said. Paul said that I strive according to the power that works mightily within me. It is not His own power that's at work. It's the power of God. And 
when he said that, it just all collided, that this, this power, this healing virtue that went out of Christ into this woman is the same exact kind of interaction that we are having with God on a regular basis. It is really comforting to think that God feels toward us and with us. And He's helping. And He's bringing hope. He's bringing healing. He's bringing change. He's bringing restoration. He's doing all of those things. And He's connected to it. God is not distant and a million miles away kind of just totally disconnected from us. He is connected to us. God is in control of His power. We can't get a pagan idea that God involuntarily releases His power because Jesus was not aware that she was back there coming up on Him. God's in control of His power. God the Father, Jesus is operating under that power. God freely and graciously in response to that faith that she had zaps that power out of Jesus into her. It was a gracious act on God's part in response to her also, similar to Jairus, desperate, humble faith. If I can get to Him, I will be made better. I will be healed. Why am I making a big deal out of that? Well, because throughout history, this is how heresies happen. We start ascribing some of these thoughts to to wrong thinking. I want to read something from R.C. Sproul that he said in his book about this. He says, We believe that Jesus is very homo, very deuce, that is the fancy way of saying truly man and truly God. But this doctrine causes much confusion and has been the flashpoint for many heresies in church history. Simply put, in the, in the incarnation, Jesus' divine nature lost none of its attributes. His divine nature stayed divine. Likewise, the human nature stayed human. The human nature was not deified and the divine nature was not humanized. If you were part of our history class, you remember this is the Council of Chalcedon. How many of you remember? That's what we were talking about. That means that touching His human nature, Jesus was not omniscient. He did not know everything in His humanity. As we will see, Jesus Himself acknowledged that He did not know the day or the hour that the Father had appointed for the destruction of Jerusalem. That's later in chapter 13. Here in Mark chapter 5, we see another example of Jesus' lack of omniscience. He knew someone had touched Him and that power had gone out from Him to heal. However, He did not know who it was who had done it. So Jesus genuinely did not know. But that doesn't mean that He was caught off guard or that God was caught off guard. Jesus in His humanity did not genuinely know who had done this. But the Father certainly did. The disciples, of course, they're annoyed a little bit. You see all these people around you. Jesus, what are you talking about? But look at what Jesus does in verse 32. He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, same thing that Jairus did, and told him the whole truth. Now, why is Mark wording it this way? 
Why is Mark making a big deal out of her fear? Why is she even afraid? You would think that having received this incredible, miraculous healing, she would not be afraid, but like, Bless God! I'm healed! But that's not what she's doing. She's actually afraid. Why is she afraid? Because she's unclean. She is unclean and she is in a crowd of people. How many people did she touch on the way to Jesus? If the story gets out that she has an issue of blood, all the people around her, including Jesus, should be considered unclean. She is scared of that reality and she doesn't hide it though. When you get in the presence of God, there isn't any hope of you telling a lie. It's not going to work. You can try to justify the sinfulness of our life. We try to do that all the time. It doesn't work because God knows our hearts down to the bottom in a way that we don't. So she doesn't even try to lie. She tells the whole truth. And I would recommend that telling the whole truth is always the right thing to do. That's a side lesson. It's important, kids. Everybody pay attention. Tell your mom and dad the truth. Okay. This is, this is really great. She comes in fear and trembling. She falls down. She tells him the whole truth. I imagine it probably sounded like, I've been bleeding for 12 years. I'm unclean. I am unworthy. But I touched you because I knew that if I did, I would be made well. And now I am. I am, but, but I'm unclean. I was un, I, I, I haven't had the seven days for the ceremonial cleansing. Look at how Jesus reacts. This is the only person in Scripture that He says this to. Which means we should really pay attention. He says, daughter. He says, daughter. He doesn't call anybody else that in Scripture. In Mark chapter 3, it is so important. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 31 And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What does a saved person get called in the kingdom of God? They get called a part of the family of God. What has happened to this woman is not merely the healing, which is the miraculous thing that she was after. Jesus looks at her and says, look at the whole thing He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, daughter, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Why does Jesus tell her that when she was already healed? Jesus is saying, it's like He's sealing the deal. It is a, it's a present tense word the way He's saying be healed. He's saying, this is, 
you're, you're permanently better. And you're permanently mine, daughter. If you and I had touched this woman, we would have been unclean. You can't make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes the unclean clean. Not only was this woman healed because of her faith, she was brought into the kingdom of God, totally cleansed. People tell me all the time, I can't come to church, the walls will fall in. You guys have friends like that too. People need to hear of the power and the majesty of Jesus that His forgiveness trumps whatever their sin is. This is the only lady in the Bible that gets called daughter directly out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, we forgot something though. Jesus was on His way to heal somebody else. And because this little episode happens, the 12-year-old girl dies. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Seems a little harsh. It's not even worth coming, Jesus. She's dead. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, he turns to to Jairus, who has just witnessed this whole episode with the woman with the issue of blood. And he's probably like, oh my gosh. He turns to him and he says, do not fear, only believe. You had faith that I could heal her, you just watch what I'm about to do. And he allowed no one to follow him. So he turns around to the crowd and he only brings Peter and James and John. Says, nobody's coming with me except dad and these three, my inner circle of disciples. So he leaves all the crowd. He leaves the woman with the issue of blood who no longer has the woman with the issue of blood. Now she's the daughter. He leaves all of them. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus' house. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Their funerals were totally the opposite of ours. Their funerals, you were required by the Pharisaic law, even if you were dirt poor, you had to have at least two flute players and one wailer. Typically, women were hired out as wailers a.k.a. screeching, a.k.a. just yelling and crying out. This is true. If there was a funeral, you had people playing dirges on flutes and you had women screaming. Now, there were other, if you were wealthy, you could get some men and women and have a choir of screeching, wailing, and flutes. That sounds crazy, and it was. They were loud, but they were hired. They didn't feel it. They were getting a paycheck to come cry at your funeral. It's really weird, but that's... What do you do for a living? Well, as you can tell by the scratchiness in my throat, I cry really loud at funerals. And that's what Jesus encounters. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus sees this commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
He's not dirt poor. He's important. He's got a crowd of people that were on standby waiting. Now imagine this. Your daughter is sick and you've already got the funeral people ready to go. It's awful. And when he had entered, Jesus, he said to them, verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? He knows why. They're the professional weepers. He knows why they're there. But he's making a point. You don't have any reason to be doing this. The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. It shows you how compassionate the weepers and the wailers were. They're there for a paycheck. They could turn off the tears and screeching in a heartbeat and transition immediately into mocking and making fun and laughing at Jesus. Because that's what happened. Who does this guy think he is? They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He put them outside. He took the child's father and mother who we're assuming was there at home, weeping for real over her daughter, who is 12 in the flower of life and now dead. He takes her by the hand and he says, Talitha Kumai. Mark is the only one that records the Aramaic. Aramaic is what Jesus would have spoken. And it gives us that. Mark wasn't there, but Peter was. There's only, how many people are in the room? Jesus, the dead daughter, mom, dad, and then the three disciples. So there were seven. Seven of them are in the room, and one of them who is telling Mark, Peter, what he remembers. I can imagine Peter remembering the story, saying, Talitha Kumai, little girl, I say to you, arise. I love that Jesus calls her little girl. There's just something tender about the way he, this is being said. Jesus is not shouting at death. He's not declaring. He is King of kings and He is Lord over death. He takes her by the hand, her dead hand, Wake up, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus has just raised this girl from the dead. He strictly charges her, charges all of them that no one should know about this told them to give her something to eat. She probably hadn't eaten for a while because she'd been so sick. We don't know what was wrong, but she, she was hungry. Because when Jesus makes you well, you get your appetite back. Especially if He raises you from the dead. First thing you would want to do is eat. And that's what He tells her to do. But Jesus, in His compassion, in His love, He says, get her something to eat. But then He says, don't tell anybody. The guy, the, the demon-possessed guy and uh, earlier in chapter 5, he told him to tell everybody. Remember that? Last week? Made him the very first real evangelist. 
tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. And now he's here back in Capernaum though, back amongst the Jewish people, trying to prevent... Because uh, after somebody's been raised from the dead, what do you think would happen? Okay, this is clearly the Messiah. Let's get Let's get the pitchforks. Let's get the swords. Jesus, let's get you a white horse. And let's go charging in and take down Rome. And instead, Jesus says, no, do not tell anybody. Now, I'm sure there were some people that heard, but that's what Jesus is doing. There's three things I want us to take away from this and then will be done. I think you can hear a lot already just from the text itself. But in both Jairus and in the woman with the issue of blood, the thing that they both have is a humble, desperate faith. Humble, desperate faith says if Jesus doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. It approaches God with humility and worship and our faith says, God, you and you alone. Faith is the instrument that God uses to deliver these powerful things that happen. Faith is the instrument that does it. You see where he's, where she had faith and Jesus said, your faith has made you well and Jairus had faith that caused him to go after Jesus. We see it in both of them. God uses faith as the instrument, but the faith is in God and His power, not in my ability to believe. Faith in your faith is not a biblical concept. Faith in the power of God is a biblical concept. Number two, Jesus is personal, compassionate, and greater than all of our unclean junk in our life. There are people sitting here that would say, and this woman with the issue of blood would have been able to say this truthfully, I am not worthy to approach Him. And she would have been right. Thank God that Jesus is the cure for us being unclean. Thank God He is the cure for all of our sin, all of our mistakes, all of our wretchedness, all of our grossness. Sometimes we seem to call what it is what it is. Terrible rebellion against God. He's the cure. And he demonstrates here in this text his compassion, his mercy, his love, his healing, his overriding all the uncleanness and all the grossness of, of their life. And who knows what was in Jairus' mind before he got desperate. Jesus doesn't look at any of that. He forgives all of it. Come to him as personal, compassionate, and greater than all of our uncleanness. And number Number three, I'll say it again, I said at the beginning, Jesus is Lord over storms, He is Lord over demons, He is Lord over sickness, and He is Lord ultimately over sin and over death. Jesus is Lord.
Our faith is not in a distant, faraway God. Our faith is in a personal Savior who loves us, who cares for us, who's personally engaged with us. Twelve years is a long time. Something interesting about that story is when this little girl was raised, this little girl that was raised from the dead when she was born was the beginning of the woman with the issue of blood's issue. Because it's both 12 years. They had a weird connection. There's actually some commentators out there who think that it's possible she could have been the girl's mom. I don't think that's true, but I thought that was interesting. And the birth of this girl caused whatever complications that were never healed. It's just an interesting thought. The most important thing is that Jesus is the healer, the savior, the cleanser of all of our unrighteousness. Now, with that in mind, we are going to receive communion. So, let's all stand up. In light of us reading about this story about God and His healing power, and we believe God heals, throughout the Bible we see God healing when people pray. We see in this story, healing took place in response to faith. So we want to pray for healing for Rachel. She's been diagnosed with cancer. She's only 24 years old, 24, 25. And there is a another gentleman that we are going to pray for this morning. His name is Malcolm. He's in Parkersburg, he's somebody we know from that area. He's been on a ventilator uh, because of COVID. He has multiple issues uh, exacerbating that, and he is in, he needs a miracle. And Rachel needs a miracle. And we're going to ask God to do that. There is nothing magical about our prayer or us taking communion together, but there is something powerful in Scripture, in our faith and trust in God. This meal represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was instituting and sealing the new covenant that God has with us. Part of what we are to do in this new covenant is approach the throne of grace in our time of need boldly. And we are going to do that together. We're going to take communion. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. We're going to ask God for healing in the body of Rachel and in the body of Malcolm this morning. Father, we come before You in Jesus' name. God, we humbly submit our lives to You. Lord, I'm encouraged by the story. I'm comforted by the story. Lord, there are people 
that we know that need help. Lord, we lift up Rachel before You. God, we ask for mercy. We ask for healing in her body. We ask, God, that You would heal her of cancer. Lord, we ask that in the precious and powerful, compassionate, loving name of Jesus. God, be with her now. Be with her husband. Be with them in peace. God, lead their hearts to You every single morning when they wake up. Have them turn their hearts and their eyes to You. Lord, we lift up Malcolm before You. God, he is intubated. He is in trouble. He needs a miracle. And God, we ask for that miracle in his body. We pray for healing. God, we ask that You would do Your work. We are humble and desperate before You because we cannot do healing, but You can. And we are asking it of You, Lord. In Your plan, in Your will, God, we submit before You these requests. And we take this communion this morning together knowing that we have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that as we take it in remembrance of You. Let's do this together. Now, Lord, to you who are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, Lord, to you be glory in the church and throughout all ages. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, you are dismissed. We love you. Thank you for being here. Encourage somebody on your way out the door. You can throw these away in trash cans in the hallway.